Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Herd Mentality. Joining me today is right-wing loudmouth and survivor of an operation to replace his brain cell with an elbow, Brian Fisher. Brian, welcome to the show. That's not fair. My description of you. There's nothing kind about that. Oh, my apologies. Just trying to represent you accurately to the audience by sticking to the facts. That's not an American thing to do. Well, it's not a Brian Fisher thing to do. Why is that? Well, as I demonstrated when introducing you, it was actually an opinion. Just like you have about, well, everything. Kim Davis, for example. Like Kim Davis? Yeah. So what's your opinion about podcasts and YouTube channels such as this one? Nobody's watching the low-information media anymore. Their ratings are going through the basement. Low-information? They turn on good-hearted, ordinary, decent people... That description doesn't fit Kim Davis. ...vilify her... Analyze her actions... Demonize her... Stick to the facts... Good-hearted woman... Been through a tough life, made some disastrous lifestyle choices. Like meeting the Pope. Got herself right with God and with Christ. She's walking a new path for the last four years. Went against the law and denied gay couples marriage certificates. Here are the people that are always lecturing us about intolerance. Which doesn't accurately describe what you're doing right now. It's because of stuff like this. Brian Fisher, thanks for your time. Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality Philosophy Edition, or Atheism for Idiots, of which I am one, and joining me on the electric Skype, I have an Australian Alex at Self-Examine Life. Welcome, sir. Hello. And the ever-present, omnipotent, omniscient, Justin Sheba at Justin's Way, W-E-H. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing? Very well. Omnipotent? That might have been an exaggeration. Not, not, not so much, but I try. <laughs> this has all come about by a gentleman who goes by the Twitter handle at Martin Bores, B-O-E-R-S. He's a, a herd mentalist and has appeared on the show before and he set this meeting up and sent me through two pages of notes which means that it might actually be a professional production we're looking forward to it so thank you martin gentlemen just a quick bio on each of you alex you're a postgraduate researcher in philosophy i was yes so i did a bachelor of arts in philosophy at university of adelaide i was a postgraduate researcher for a while as well and that's when i wrote the infamous blog post that's been doing the rounds for the last couple of years the infamous blog post so this is the philosopher's grown blog indeed which has been touched since (laughs) it keeps coming up keeps rearing its head and people keep sending it to me and in essence how would you summarize it oh well i hope we got the rest of the hour to summarize but uh, (laughs) we do in a sense, the, the two things I wanted to hit was that I kept seeing the same kind of memes and tropes coming up again and again, that the most reasonable position for an atheist to take was to only profess a lack of belief in the supernatural. And to do anything more than that, to, to make any positive claims, was actually intellectually dishonest. And this was interesting to me because I used to hold this view. And then a good friend of mine who was also a postgraduate researcher once just pointed out to me a couple of inconsistencies in it, which made me change my mind. Very well. But no matter how 
I tried to phrase it when using Twitter against uh, with uh, discussing this with people who held that view. Uh, it was never quite enough to change their minds, and I thought maybe Twitter just wasn't the right medium for getting across complex philosophical ideas. So I thought I'll just <laughs> write it all down <laughs> uh, and. And then just link it to people in the future. And then it just sort of got a life of its own. And it keeps coming back to me. Probably on a weekly basis, I get linked into a conversation where people are talking about it. So I'd never realized it would actually get this much traction. The word on the street is that it's also attracted the attention of William Lane Craig. Indeed. And I was told that had I, I was linked his approval of it, I suppose you could say. Uh, I never chose to respond to him, though. I, I had other things going at the time. <laughs> Those toenails aren't going to cut themselves. And Justin, you're uh, yes. the founder of the Real Atheology YouTube channel, Smart Guy Debater, etc., etc., and you used to be on the Reasonable Doubts podcast. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, uh, so I've been kind of exploring these questions in a more academic way, but but really just on my own for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years or so. And I just recently departed from the Reasonable Doubts podcast, of which I was on for about four years or so. And uh, since then, I've started the Real Atheology YouTube channel. And essentially what I'm doing there is I'm hoping to bring quality philosophy of religion, at least contemporary philosophy of religion, to the atheist community and hopefully bring some nuance where I, I at least observe there being a lack of it. Well, speaking of nuance, I've also got Deepak Chopra on the line who's going to be joining us just in case things get a little bit out of control because I'm as I mentioned off air, especially thick when it comes to such matters. So as you try and explain this to me, if we come across a speed bump, we might hear from Deepak. These questions occur to human beings. Okay. So when we hear that, we'll have to slow it down, bring it back and dumb it down for Adam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So where's a good place to start, Alex? Okay, I suppose the best place to start is going to be uh, with that claim that lack of belief is the best that we can do, mm. or the, is, is the intellectual position to hold. Now, I sort of diagnosed the problem over a, a number of weeks or months that it seems to come down to the idea that you can only make a positive claim when you can claim to know it for certain. And this struck me immediately as false. This is what's called Descartes' error. The philosopher René Descartes in I think it was 15th century, famous for the cogito, I think, therefore I am. He was trying to construct a foundation for knowledge where if you started from something that was certain, you could build up from that and then everything you know about the world would be certain because you would only accept beliefs if you could definitely know they were true. Now, his project ended up going, I wouldn't say it went nowhere, but he, he found that he just, it couldn't be done without presupposing the existence of God, <laughs> which is uh, sort of the, the crux of the issue here. So the way that we, we think about knowledge these days, or at least in the most accepted way since Plato, at least, would be to characterize it as a justified true belief. So it's justified because you have evidence for the claim. It's true in that it matches reality. And it's a belief in that it is your attempt to represent the world in a true way. So the word belief often gets a lot of skeptical hackles up here, and it's unnecessarily so that it does. Mm -hmm. I can understand why it does, because in the way they're often, or the, the most common time they're going to hear the word belief is when the one is being professed at them, which usually doesn't have evidence, or it has the kind of evidence that they're not likely to accept. It also comes into play on the chart 
that we will probably touch upon several times throughout the discussion. Mm -hmm. The Gnosticism and theism, what is it, the, the X and Y axis that shows you down the bottom right, a Gnostic theist. So you have a belief in God, then over to the left is agnostic theist. So you believe there's a God, but you don't know it to be true. Then you head up to the top left quadrant. You've got an agnostic atheist, which is where I presently reside, <laughs> or as close to the uh, to the y-axis as you can on that chart. And then on the right is gnostic atheist. So knowing that there is no God. Correct. So I see this, uh, this meme come up quite a lot. It gets linked by uh, a lot of people and it has an appeal to it. It definitely does. I can't deny that. Where I would say it goes wrong is that it treats belief and knowledge as if they're two separate categories, as if they're mutually yes. exclusive, when in fact they're nested categories. A knowledge claim is a subset of belief. So Yeah, so re remember that uh, when Alex was talking about you know the kind of classical definition of knowledge here being justified true belief. So what that means is that knowledge is a particular kind of belief, mainly the kind that is both justified and true. So if we think about knowledge in, in that way, then this chart here gets a little bit difficult to make sense of because, again, it, it's treating knowledge and belief as separate categories when really you have knowledge when you have a certain kind of belief, mainly one that's justified and true. If you take those three categories, what makes knowledge? So it's justified, true, and believed. Let's imagine a belief that was justified but not true. Okay, So these these things happen all the time. So uh, you think you have good reasons to believe something, then it turns out that it wasn't true. So you thought you had knowledge at the time, but it wasn't the case. Now, you're just wrong. That's, it's as simple as that. You were just wrong. Now imagine you have a belief that's true, but you were unjustified in believing it. So it was a lucky guess. So you can see how this definition does map across our experience in the way that we actually use these these terms when speaking to each other or just in, in general when you go about your life. So I often hear that the justified and the true part are sort of redundant because if something is justified, then it's true by definition because you've got evidence for it. But something can be, as I said, something can be justified to you, but not justified to somebody else. There's a whole range of examples you can get into that tease apart why each of these parts of the definition are warranted. And that would take a whole podcast on its own to go into <laughs> the uh, the examples where these actually fail as well. So, Well, let's keep it really simple. What's one example each way? Okay. So a belief that is true but not justified uh, would just be any lucky guess. So how many coins have you got in your pocket right now? I don't know. Okay, I'm going to guess you've got a 20 cent and a 50 cent. Oh, look at that. You're, I was right. I was true. But I didn't really have any reason to be justified in claiming that I knew it. Then suppose for a claim or a belief which is justified but not true so it's false so i have evidence for something let's suppose let's suppose i look out my window and i see my car parked in the driveway i look away i have the belief that my car is there in the driveway unbeknownst to me my wife has taken it just as i looked away she's taken it to the grocery store driven back and parked in the same spot the next time i look out the window my car is there i have a justified belief that my car did not move but it did I was just not aware of it. Very well. Justin, any thoughts? Notice that the degree to which one is justified in holding a belief can, you know, the important point here is obviously that Alex is bringing up is that the degree to which one is justified in holding a belief is going to vary from person to person and from time to time because we don't always have the same evidence available to us at every time in our life 
and not all persons have access to the same evidence. So, for example, you know, let's say you know, you're a young Christian or something, right? And every book in your house is just an apologetics book, right? And you love reading, and you're reading all these books, and so you have access to all the arguments for God, but you have none of the responses to them. So given the evidence available to you at that point in time, you're justified in thinking, oh, well, quite clearly all the, uh, you know, assuming that you don't have counterexamples, right? Assuming you don't have those, then given the evidence that you have available to you at that time, that's going to seem like a very plausible idea. But for someone else who is in the opposite situation, then the opposite belief might be justified. Now, of course, it's a separate question of what's actually true about the questions addressed in those books. But, you know, that's that's a matter of, of truth rather than justification. Is there a better way to define atheism then? The philosophical, if, and when I say philosophical, I really want to make the point that we are talking about professionals. We're not just talking about navel gazers sitting around an armchair smoking weed. Uh, we are talking about people who have been grappling with these kinds of questions for not just their entire lives, but for the last two and a half thousand years. So we're talking about serious people who think about these things. But who and also smoke weed. Go ahead, Justin. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they get paid to, to, to think about these things. But the professional philosophical view on atheism is that it is the disbelief in the existence of the supernatural, or at least in the existence of supernatural entities like gods. And that is quite different from what you see online. Online, you get this lack of belief view. From a strategic point of view, I understand why it exists, because when you don't have to have a burden of proof, it's a very good debating trick to switch the burden of proof to your opponent, because that means all you have to do is shoot them down. You don't have to provide any positive arguments. I'm not saying that is what's being done here, because when you're making a positive claim that something exists, yes, you do have to give that you have that burden of proof, and that certainly does fall on a theist. Now, the kinds of evidence they're going to give, which is usually things like personal testimony, are just not going to be sufficient to sway anybody else who hasn't had that personal experience. So it doesn't surprise me that those debates are usually of people talking past one another. You're suggesting we should lift our game, actually accept some responsibility here. Yes, and I think it can be done because, as I said, there are two and a half thousand years worth of literature on this. Most of it is good scholarship. Anyone can pick up Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell and read it. He's a very easy-to-read writer. He's a very clear analytical thinker um, from the analytic tradition of philosophy. He makes great short arguments. You can see the premises outlined quite clearly and the conclusion. Where the current online view seems to rest or seems to come from was from a philosopher called Anthony Flew, who I think in the 80s started to think about atheism more as the, this is the, this is the infamous uh, gentleman who switched sides in his later years and became a religious believer. He looked more to the etymology of the word and says it's atheism without theism, therefore it's a lack of belief and that's the, that's the most you should ever profess. Now, I find that amusing because the word atheist, when it was originally brought into into use, uh, say in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, it was actually used against Christians in ancient Rome to say, oh, you've gone from a pantheon of gods to just one. Why don't you just take the extra step? You're almost there. So it was sort of used as an insult to early Christians. The word has changed over time. It didn't actually mean without gods. It meant without all of them but one. So Justin... How can we prove a negative? 
How can we prove a negative? Well, that's going to depend on what one means by the word prove. So if by prove you mean just show or demonstrate that it is improbable, then quite obviously you could appeal to evidence in that case. If by prove you mean a kind of Cartesian mathematical certainty, you know, where you prove beyond any doubt, really, that it's just an analytical truth that something does not exist. By that, you can just bring up, you know, you could just show that there's an incoherence in the very concept itself that's being forwarded. So, for example, some people argue that, to bring this discussion back to the topic of theism and atheism, some people argue that God, the very concept of God, is incoherent, that God is in many ways like a circular square, right? Now, that concept can't exist because part of what it means to be circular is that it is not a square, and part of what it means to be a square is that it is not circular. So, to talk about a circular square is to talk about a nonsense concept. It does not make sense. And so, when someone says, hey, I have a circular square in my basement, I don't have to go and empirically verify that it's not there. I can say, given what those words mean, I already know with certainty that no such thing exists. And, of course, some people think that God is like that. And so, you know, they can point to different paradoxes within the, the definition of God. I think that those arguments aren't particularly successful, but that's a whole other discussion. So it boils down to definition. I mean, something that we haven't referenced so far is the Dawkins scale, which is just really another another way of describing your position rather than using that little XY chart that we've referenced several times already. Because of the likelihood, or perhaps more importantly, because of the position that most theists take being so poorly defined as to what God is, then I sit at a 6.9999 repeater. Mm -hmm. Where do you guys sit? Well, I guess I'm forgetting exactly what the... I remember that 7 was supposed to be a kind of certainty that God did not exist, but what was 0 supposed to represent, or what was 1 supposed to represent? Gnostic theism. What, okay, so you're, you're just not sure? The evidence is ambiguous at that point? No, Gnostic theism. So one oh, being... Oh, oh, okay. So, so three, like some kind of halfway point would be where you're completely agnostic or you don't know either way. I'm guessing it's three and a half, and I think we're all a bit rusty on this one, but sort of halfway <laughs> between the two, sure. uh, you're, sure. yeah, you're approaching harder and harder atheism. Right, right. So where I would put myself is probably smack dab between agnosticism and like certain atheism. So I stay significantly far away from certain atheism and I stay significantly far away from pure agnosticism. But sometimes I fluctuate. That has to be allowed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, we have something in common there. Alex, whereabouts are you? If we're accepting the premise that it's it's a good scale to begin with, then I suppose I would put myself in near the six category. But it should be noted that this is it's not something that you, as Justin just said, it's something you can fluctuate on over time. You update as new evidence comes in. So far, mm. I've seen no reason to update in the downward direction on this scale. I'm only going in the upward direction. But if seven represents the kind of rock-solid certainty of I think, therefore I am, then I don't think that's a reasonable position to ever hold. We haven't mentioned Russell's teapot. Is this a good example to bring into it? We can. So uh, Russell's teapot, uh, the notion that in order to prove something, you have to, you can't just assert it. There needs to be some kind of evidence to show that it does exist, uh, that uh, someone can just go, well, you can't prove that there isn't a teapot floating around Mars right now. It's like, okay, I can't prove that there's not in the hard Cartesian sense of 
you know, a mathematic, as, as Justin said, a mathematical or analytical truth. No, I can't do that. But I can show beyond a reasonable doubt, and that is the key phrase here, reasonable doubt, right. that no such thing could exist given the technology that we have. And that is what we always have to keep in the back of our minds, that all these claims are being made against the background of the massed knowledge of humanity. So I use this as an example in the post that today, intelligent design has the burden of proof to show that evolution is false and that their view is correct. In Darwin's day, it was the other way around. Design was evident. It was up to someone else's, but it was his burden of proof to show that you could get design in nature without a designer. Yes. But now that we have 150 years worth of evidence amassed on one side of this debate and nothing on the other side, that burden of proof has switched. So where your background information lies, it gives the arrow to who holds the burden of proof because they're the ones pushing their claim and, uphill. And Alex, I think that's a really important point because I think that's another at least – Something that I often see that is what I think is a bit problematic is when people think about the burden of proof, already that phrase I think is a bit troublesome in and of itself. But uh, if I set that aside, we ask, if you go up to your average atheist and ask, who has the burden of proof in discussions generally? Not just the existence of God question, but just generally speaking. Most of the time, I think, I think most people, period, actually, I, I, there's no reason to really limit this to atheists. But I think that most people intuitively are going to say something like, that person who is making the positive existence claim is the one who bears the burden of proof. And I think that as you said, you, I think that you're right in that it's not that simple. This is going to be couched in a certain amount of background evidence, mainly the accumulation of human knowledge so far. And so some questions or some positive existence claims are going to fit very comfortably on the background evidence that we've accumulated, and some are not going to, right? This is kind of intuitively what we mean when we talk about extraordinary claims and non-extraordinary claims. If I tell you that I have a coffee cup in my car, that's not something that's particularly extraordinary, given what we know uh, that's not a very uncommon thing to occur. People carry cups in their cars sometimes. But if I told you that I had a time-traveling machine, well, that's impinging upon a lot of accumulated knowledge. That's the kind of claim that, even though they're both positive existence claims, one of them clearly bears a bigger burden, and one of them barely has a burden at all. I accept your claim about owning a time machine because you told me tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> So, guys, where is... Oh, there's another truck going through. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's just Justin firing up his time machine. So, <laughs> what is the best argument you guys have come across from the theist camp? You go first, Alex. <laughs> okay. And while we wait for Alex to think, what are your thoughts, Deepak? These questions occur to human beings. Hmm. <laughs> Well, I'm just trying to go over in my mind which ones would convince me if I was an impartial observer without without having done the years of study I have. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I can easily think of the of the arguments which have, have swayed me of the other position. I think the problem of evil is the strongest on our side, both the logical and the evidential version. Now, if I was arguing for the theist. I, this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piss a lot of people off with this, but um, I actually <laughs> think the argument from personal experience would be it. 
if you've had that experience, there's a lot of psychological factors that bear on your ability to interpret those kinds of experiences as yeah. something that only works for you and it can't possibly be conveyed to somebody else. And unless you're on guard for those kinds of experiences, and I will actually say I have had experiences in the past, which had I not been prepared for them, I could very easily have interpreted them in a religious light. And I may not be having this conversation with you right now, or at least not from this side of the debate. <laughs> so if you're not prepared to, if you, you haven't learned about cognitive biases and the way that your interpretation can change your experience of an event... I imagine that would be the strongest kind of argument. Or it's not even really an argument, I suppose. It's just, it's a datum. Uh, right. And, mm. and the plural of anecdote not being data, which is pretty clear. I got invited to church by one of the street preachers in Sydney. And the vast majority of the time when they weren't singing or or telling stories about very old fishermen, everyone was pulled up onto the stage one by one to give a testimony and reinforce those biases, which you've referenced, Alex, but you were prepared for those. You're fortunate in the sense that you were in a position to be able to identify, well, which is more likely? Is it a real religious experience or could this be attributed to something else? Drugs, whatever it is you may be into, I'm not pointing fingers. What you're suggesting here is that that's the most likely thing to convince you if you weren't in that position. Yes. At the moment, what's enjoying a lot of popularity is the argument from design and it has enjoyed popularity for a long time because humans seem geared to see intentionality in the world. We see design in everything. I have an extended family member who once looked up at the sky in the middle of the day and said in shock, why is the moon out? It's not that nighttime. And I just thought it was so cute. It, I mean, it would have been cute if not for the fact that this person was in their 60s. But, <laughs> um, and, and running for president in the States. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see where that idea comes from. For them, the sun is the thing that's out in the day and the moon is the thing that's out at night. And that's just the clockwork way the universe is meant to work. And somehow they've managed to pass 60-something years without noticing that that's not how things work. So, Design is very its very inherent to the way we look at the world. It's a very intuitive way to argue for the existence of God, but uh, as, as Justin and I are well aware, it, it doesn't work. And as any evolutionary biologist knows, it doesn't work. It doesn't really stack up. I, I like the idea of sort of hijacking the term intelligent design and using it to our own advantage. For example, let's say I'm a car manufacturer like Volkswagen just run an advertising campaign for their latest vehicle that's got all the bells and whistles and to say the Volkswagen U-Butte four-wheel drive built by people who believe in intelligent design. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, most compelling argument you've heard from the other side? Well, I actually don't think that there uh, is any hope in any individual argument. I think that some of them can count as evidence, but I think that that's a relatively trivial thing to say. But uh, when it comes to the most promising approach to trying demonstrating theism, I would have to say it's something along the lines of the, the way in which Richard Swinburne, someone like Richard Swinburne, who's a, an Oxford professor, he builds arguments on top of each other in a particular way, wherein their evidential strength accumulates. And so if you can get enough arguments together, 
that have a particular kind of relationship to each other. And it's a really interesting way in which this works. And then this can be done on both sides, by the way. Um, the other side, I mean, you could look at someone like Paul Draper, who does something similar from the atheist side. But I think that the most promising approach would be something like Swinburne's, where he takes a number of evidential arguments, stacks them on top of each other, and builds a kind of incremental cumulative case. These questions occur to human beings. Yes, sorry. Thank you, Deepak. We're going to have to interrupt you there, Justin. Can you give us an example? Okay, sure. Well, first of all, if I just limit myself to his evidential arguments, we could talk about the fine-tuning argument, right? And most people, I think, are going to know roughly what this is. Fine-tuning argument points to an observation that we've noticed that it appears to be the case that certain initial conditions, certain cosmos, cosmological constants, that they fall within a life-permitting range, but that this life-permitting range is very small compared to the wholly possible ranges that they could have fallen in. So some people have argued that that requires explanation and that theism is better equipped to explain that observation than, say, uh, kind of thoroughgoing naturalism, right, where there is no God, a kind of atheistic hypothesis. This is another argument from design, essentially. Right, right. This is absolutely. This is a, um, a more kind of modern take on the argument from design, uh, whereas the old argument from design, which is largely seen as a failure, except if you're in the intelligent design school, would be something <laughs> along the lines of biological design. Now, Swinburne would then say, OK, look, that's going to count as some evidence for theism. And of course, there are objections to this. I'm not endorsing this argument necessarily, but he would say that and then he's going to stack on top of that facts about how the kinds of creatures that exist. So there exists uh, morally interesting creatures, creatures capable of making moral decisions. And on theism, it seems like you could have plausible reasons why God would want to make such agents. But on naturalism, if we go back in time from naturalism and we kind of re-roll the cosmic dice, it's very improbable that we are either going to have, you know, if if the fine-tuning argument or the, the premise on which the fine-tuning argument is built is correct, then there's absolutely no guarantee that we're going to have even the biology that is necessary to bring about evolution, which is necessary to bring about interesting species, and then further on down the line, intelligent, moral morally capable species, right? So there's a number of things that need to fall into place. And so a cumulative argument like that can at least, at the very least, seem extremely intuitively plausible. That's not to say that there aren't a bunch of objections to both his method and his particular claims. But that, to me, is one of the more interesting approaches to these questions. And so it's it's primarily what I've been looking into for the last few years. Mm. And in both cases, the common theme here is that they fall apart once you bring in peer review. Yes. Simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Justin, where can we find more of your stuff? My current project is uh, Real Atheology, and you can find this just by uh, a simple Google search. If it's difficult to hear what that last word is, it's atheology. So just theology with an A before it, which it just means you know, a general opposition to God. So that's my YouTube project that I'm working on. I'm also working on a book with a theologian friend of mine in which we will be exploring a lot of the issues we've talked about tonight and some of the actual arguments on both sides as well. And it's going to be a book that we're looking to have constructed pretty soon. So Very well. Well, I'd love to have you back on to hear some more about that because it's been an interesting chat. So, guys, if you've enjoyed what Justin's had to say, go and check him out. Go and catch him on some old episodes. I think the main thing I want people to take away from this is that language is for communication. When we are 
debating the definition of words and i often whenever i choose to engage with when i get linked to this post over and over is that people accuse me of trying to redefine words as if language was immutable and that it never changes and that there can't be more than one meaning for a single word as uh, we we all well know the word theory gets a lot of play in it doesn't um, it what <laughs> indeed <laughs> Indeed, the, the word theory gets a lot of play amongst the lay population as a guess, uh, something that's not really informed, it's just something you have a punt at. But, but for the scientifically minded, a theory is the, it's the highest badge of honor that an idea can hold. Mm. It knits together a whole bunch of other concepts and makes sense of them in one simpler, unified whole. When we talk to people, we need to be clear what they understand our words mean. When I'm talking to people on Twitter, I try to avoid words like belief because I know how they're going to receive it. When I talk to my philosopher friends, I know I can use the word because I know how they're going to receive it. So as long as we all define our terms, we should be able to have these conversations without difficulty. But we have to accept what the other person defines their words as. We can't say, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't just redefine that word. Well, this is a common theme, for example, on the atheist experience when somebody calls in. I have an argument for God. Okay, well, before we get to that, what is God? Yes, Yes, I love how Dillahunty does that. He wants to get a target to aim at because otherwise they can just... It keeps uh, moving. It's this, it's this amorphous concept that can just dodge bullets like Neo in the Matrix. And you need to get them to pin it down first before you can have that discussion. And that's something that you really cover off at the beginning of that article. And just really quickly, again, where can we find that? If you just Google uh, the Philosopher's Grown WordPress, you'll find it. It hasn't been updated in two years and it probably won't ever be updated again. <laughs> I am uh, thinking of starting up blogging again in the near future, mostly just to collect my own thoughts on a whole view of concepts because I've changed my mind on a lot of things in recent past, everything from moral realism to my political persuasion. So there's a lot that I want to just put down on paper at some point, and I think a blog would be a good place to do it. Absolutely. Well, I think you've probably got a whole bunch of subscribers there waiting for some more information. So, Alex, at Self-Examined Life and Justin, at Justin Sway, S-W-E-H, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having us, Adam. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Third Mandalists, hear me. Stephen Hawking here. Pause for effect. When I need a break from studying the origins of the universe, I turn to my favorite podcast, The Herd Mentality. I support it at patreon.com slash herdmentality. For less than a cup of coffee each month, it allows Questionable Adam to continue producing a fine show for your listening pleasure. It also helps women in developing countries to further their education by giving 10% of the proceeds through Kiva.org. Now, if you will excuse me, I am going to continue listening to the show. Exterminate. Exterminate. Just kidding. Stephen Hawking out. Joining me on the line is Nimrod Ping. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Adam. What's your Twitter handle? It's at atheist underscore sausage. Very well. Nimrod Ping. I'll just refer to you as Nimrod going forward. How's that sound? That sounds perfect, Adam. Very well. Now, you've been a, what would we say, a long-time listener or frustrated uh, listener? <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening for a while now. It's taken me a little while to catch up. Over the last sort of six months, I've been plowing my way through the podcasts and I've now finally caught up 
to I'm actually up to date with you, which is quite nice because uh, I wish I'd started listening sooner because I'd have been able to possibly help out with some of the, the great things you've been doing. But I'm say I'm now caught up, so hopefully anything else that comes up I can uh, get stuck in with. Well, I make no guarantees about doing great things in the future or indeed even in the past, but uh, I appreciate you listening in and, and joining in and having a bit of fun. So you're a, are we allowed to talk about what you do for a living? Yes, certainly. Fantastic. What do you do? I'm a police officer in the UK and I work on the road policing team and I'm actually, I'm a firearms officer. Uh, so day to day I'll crew one of our armed response vehicles and my main sort of role is to respond to any spontaneous firearms incidents there might be conversely when we're not doing that we'll respond to any road traffic collisions also we'll help out with general police and we can back up to that sort of thing as well that's the main sort of thing we do but we we do have um, extra skills we're equipped with that we can use for other aspects of policing as well now you mentioned you're a firearms officer and this is often well this is a hot topic at the moment what sort of firearms incidents do you come up against in the uk it's, it's very varied really it's Generally, we're called to a situation where we need to deal with someone that's otherwise so dangerous that they can only be safely dealt with by use of an appropriate officer who's trained in the use of firearms and also less lethal items. We have baton guns and also tasers. We carry those as well. But basically, it, it could vary. It could be someone with a sword. It could be a, a robbery of some sort. It could be someone who's uh, emotionally distressed. All the way up to it, it could be response to a terrorist scenario. Obviously, in the current climate, that's a very sort of hot topic. Mm. Uh, something that we do quite a lot of training towards now. How do the responses in the UK differ to the responses in the US, for example? The main difference there is everybody's routinely armed, whereas in the UK, uh, in the UK, we police by consent and we only have a, a small percentage of officers that do actually carry firearms day to day. Generally, we, we're sort of quite discreet with them and we have different levels that we can approach at. We, basically, we will perform a dynamic risk assessment. One thing I do notice with most sort of scenarios, the US, they're quite quick to, to draw the, the firearms ourselves we're probably we can go in a bit more low-key at times because we do do quite a high degree of training to that respect as regards being able to deploy the weapons quickly so we don't always need to have them drawn in comparison to the us we also uh, sort of pride ourselves in our tactical communications and we're very sort of proud of the fact that we've not really well we've not had any discharges in in my particular force to date so that's always a good sign the fact that we can resolve a situation more with communicating with someone rather than having to actually uh, use force mm. yeah the word discharge it sounds a bit rude, but um, well done. Yeah, it does a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so what aspects of critical thinking do you take into your work? I mean, you talk about priding yourself on communication, but to be equipped with a weapon that's able to take somebody out and not use it. What are the thinking processes that go on there? I also come from a military background and the rationale with shooting in in that sort of scenario is a target presents and you engage it. In this current role now, obviously, there's a lot more you have to take into consideration. Ultimately, if, if you were to take a shot, that's going to be your absolute last course of action. That's when there's nothing else you can do. Generally, it's just being able to speak to people on a level, look for some common ground and for something that you can engage 
engage with them and you know just to let them see that it's a person they're speaking to and, and not a uniform once you can get people past that generally you can have a good conversation one of the things i'll normally say to people is you know it's, it's a lot easier for you to speak to a stranger about things than it is to speak to a member of family because there's the anonymity there so it does make it for a lot easier for us to speak to people and it's just being able to you know see if you can find some common ground to um bring it to a you know a peaceful resolution now something else that's just occurred to me is you also manage or in part at least some of the social media that the police force does online and you've used quite a bit of humor to communicate some points tell us a little bit about that well part of our policy is gone are the days where you rarely get uh, police officers walking the beat like they used to 10 15 years ago so now a lot of our community engagement is done through social media and again we're trying to humanize us as an organization and the beauty with the social media and using a bit of humor is they you know they actually see that we are real people we're not just tweeting about collisions we've been to or somebody who's been burgled you know we'll actually tweet what we're up to if somebody's one of my colleagues has played a gag on me or something we'll perhaps tweet that but also we'll just use the odd bit of humor here and there and conversely what happens then is people retweet that and then we we gain more followers now that actually has an alter effect as well for the fact the more followers we can gain it then assists us when we actually need them so in the past if we've had um, a report of a vulnerable missing person one of the first things we'll do is we'll put it onto our twitter to feed and uh, the responses we get from that is is phenomenal also um when we've been dealing with serious collisions we'll put witness appeals out by way of a tweet and again that they'll get retweeted and if we use the right hashtags to sort of isolate the area we've had some great responses you know witness appeals from that so for us the social media is a really useful tool so you speak about collisions on the road and so forth are you involved with breaking the bad news to people yes i have been on a a couple of occasions generally on our team we're made up of firearms officers and traffic officers but we do perform dual roles on occasions then yes we you know if we've been to a serious collision basically we'll uh, we'll start the investigation at the scene we'll have our collision investigation unit will come out to it and then obviously officers will start taking different roles and one of the roles is that of a family liaison officer i'm not actually one myself but i've accompanied a couple of them when they've been to deliver the bad news and it's just one of the worst things you'll ever do and sometimes it it can be over something so trivial as someone using the mobile phone while they're driving, the texting or, you know, the talking or just real silly things that can lead to fatalities. Um, another one is not wearing your seatbelt. You might just be nipping down the road, but you can't account for who else is on the road at that time. So to that end, I've been with my colleagues when they've actually been to break the bad news. And it is a dreadful thing to have to do. And it's amazing the process you go through when you go to the house. So talk us through one of those. We did one recently. It was a young girl who was involved in a fatal collision. We had to go and break the news to the family and it was about two o'clock in the morning and we pulled onto the housing estate. Very nice houses. We pulled up outside. You then undertake what we call is the longest walk. You walk up to the house and it's amazing how many things you start to notice. Like you'll be looking at the cars on the driveway to see if there's uh, any child seats in there and you're scanning the windows looking for child's toys or just 
all sorts of bits and pieces. You knock the door and then someone sticks their head out the window upstairs, a bit bleary eyed and say, ask, you know, what is it? And obviously we say, you know, could you come to the door? We, we need to speak to you. They come down to the door and it was this uh, young girl's mum. My colleague proceeded to break the bad news to her. And, it, you know, for someone who was 10 minutes ago sleeping peacefully, we, we then we turn up and destroy the life it's just it's just heartbreaking to see because the first thing they, they do is they go into it's the denial phase and they're convinced that we're wrong we've got the wrong house we've got the wrong person and then obviously with this one as well we had the girl's siblings then come downstairs and the dad and the mum then has to tell them and it's just heartbreaking to see but you know it's just something we have to do and it's just a dreadful thing to have to do and all what we can do is just try and support the family the best we can when we do that that sounds super messy and i'm (laughs) glad that i don't have to be involved but you guys seem to certainly have the best man on the job for it let's switch up to because your your Twitter handle atheist underscore sausage, you're obviously active yeah. in the atheist community. What got you to that point? I've never always been. I wouldn't say I was comfortable with religion, but I used to just go along with it because I suppose it's like the old Pascal's wager. You're better off believing than not believing. As I've grown older and the longer I've spent in this particular job, and basically you, you see good people having really bad luck. And then you see, conversely, you know, we'll be involved in a pursuit with a stolen vehicle, uh, which could potentially crash and we'll uh, arrest, say, three young lads out of the car and they'll walk away without a scratch. And, you know, you think, well, not wishing harm on anyone. Some of these lads, you know, some of these people, you know, are quite unsavory characters. And you think these people get away with so much. And then the decent people have so much bad things happen to them. And it it just sort of got me thinking, you know, well, surely if there was a God, he would surely be looking out for his flock, you know, not rewarding the 'er ne'er-do-wells. It just just didn't seem to add up for me. I had a trip to Auschwitz with uh, some of my mates from work. And again, that just sort of reaffirmed it for me then realizing what people had gone through there quite devout people as well the suffering they went through is just just well you just can't put into words the atrocity of it but again it makes you just think well how can there actually be a god i'd had a bad situation at work that i was um, i had to have a bit of time off work it was coupled with uh, i'd had a bereavement as well so i wasn't in a very good place at that time at the time ridiculously i thought oh i must have done something wrong to for this to happen i must be being punished and it wasn't until months later i thought to myself what an idiot you know <laughs> how ridiculous is that it's um it, it just got me sort of thinking all the more about because so, i had time off about life and i also had some counseling as well and we discussed quite a lot and uh, it just got me into a more of a critical mindset but i also believe being an atheist does make you a better police officer okie dokes talk me through that Basically, the, the UK College of Policing has a code of ethics. The policing principles are accountability, fairness, honesty, integrity, leadership, objectivity, openness, respect and selflessness. Now, to me, that sounds like a good atheist because you're objective, you think critically, you're open to anything, you respect diverse cultures, you know, people's beliefs. 
and and also you, you know you try and be good you try and help people where you can and you're doing it for its own good deed and you're not doing it for some heavenly reward or for fear of burning in hell you know so i like to think that's why being a, an atheist makes me a better police officer i don't even think atheism needs to enter into it that that to me sounds just like a good humanist it does yeah again it's there are so many aspects to police in there's a christian police association there's an association of muslim officers as uh, there's a black officers association there's a female officers association there's so many different aspects to policing i'm guessing and it's i'm I, guessing it's rather difficult to join all of them it is yes and in <laughs> fact in fact there's there's a, a gay police association okay. and, and also in in the past they've had a few run-ins with the christian police association so there's been a bit of friction between them and i i was thinking you know there's there's no sort of humanist section but i then like you say i thought well there doesn't really need to be because it should be the default position exactly so you, sh- you shouldn't be sort of identifying with a particular set as it were it, it well it depends really you know but if you can embrace all those core values being a humanist it's uh, it's ideal really Mm. But I'm, I'm curious about this little stoush with the gay club and the Christian club. Was it what over who gets to wear the most fabulous shoes? Or oh, <laughs> I think it was hats. <laughs> um, of course, it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was one officer who was actually sacked uh, a Christian police officer. This was back in I think it was 2006. And basically, um, at work, we have an email system and he kept getting messages about upcoming gay pride events, which he objected to. Uh, and he replied to them, basically telling them that it was immoral and sinful what they were doing. As a result, he, he was warned about it, but he continued to do it and uh, he ended up losing his job over it. Now, this sounds very Kim Davis. It, well, yeah, <laughs> very, very much so, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Dokes. I'll finish on one final thought. You're a big fan of the Raygate saga, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, I love Ray. <laughs> in, it, fact, in, in fact, one thing I, I must say, Adam, is I've noticed recently in a lot of the, uh, recent shows, you haven't played the Deepak Chopra. Deepak Comfort, Masters of the Universe. Jingle. So by me saying that now, will that be inserted? I could do that for you, yes. Super. (laughs) You know that's available as a ringtone? I do, yes. Mm. Yes, I do. Yeah, I'd love to be sitting somewhere in Burma, perhaps, and then just hear this Deepak Comfort (laughs) ringtone from one of the local tribesmen. I go, ah, there's a herd mentalist. That would make me very happy. (laughs) That'd be brilliant. I love hearing about people's first-hand experiences and how they go about their thinking processes in their day-to-day lives. I think that's fascinating. So, at atheist underscore sausage, Nimrod Ping, thank you very much for your time. No problem, thank you. Here's a tweet by Chris Krzmenski. I am religion, and I have learned that if I mash all the keys on a piano at once, people will find music in it if they want to. Follow Chris at C.E.K. Books and grab his latest work, All These Quiet Places, a collaboration with Jen August about domestic violence on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me not even on the line, I don't have to deal with lag this time, I've got Warwick 
from the uh, Herd Mentality Recording Dungeon. Yes, live from the dungeon. And what, what are your impressions? Well, I understand that many people have come in here and never left, so I'm a little <laughs> bit concerned, Adam, to tell you the truth. They're buried behind the yeah, laser printer. Yeah, right. Morik, you and I have just had a fantastic lunch. Oh, I might be able to sit down for a couple of days, I can tell you. <laughs> we went to the Hurricanes mm. Grill place in mm. uh, just over the road from where I live. And you're the second herd mentalist I've taken there. We've also taken other prestigious guests, yeah. Aaron Ra, Seth Andrews, Matt Dillahunty, all went there. And you and I managed to eat between us what Aaron <sighs> did by himself. So. Many ribs were destroyed <laughs> and it was well worth it. But you're here today because I actually called you out of the blue to talk about mm. Kiva. Yeah, well, this is actually your fault, as to tell you the <laughs> truth. I heard about Kiva.org on the Herb Mentality podcast, and when I looked at it, it, to me, seemed like just the right way to give to charity. You can be really granular and specify who you're going to look after, who you're going to lend money to. The repayment rate is really high. It lets you relend that sort of money, and you know you're making an actual difference. The times that we've been traveling around the world, you can see how how much a small amount of money can make to the value of someone's life who's, uh, say, in Africa or a developing country uh, on the Middle East and so forth. And Kiva lets you do that from where you are. So for me, it's been a really useful way of effective altruism, I suppose. We've mentioned this on the show before, that it's a system that's a hand up, not a hand out, mm. because the money you do lend, you get back, but it costs mm. you to lend it. So it's not like an investment that earns you money. You you lose in doing so. You do, but it's a, it's a sort of small price, I suppose. We're very lucky here in Australia and I, and I guess most places this podcast goes to, uh, we do live in a, a wealthy society and to be able to do something that's meaningful to someone who's trying to get an education or build a business and so forth that we can help from in front of your computer here, it makes so much sense to me. Mm. When I was going through the stats on Kiva because I was just about to release a podcast today or tomorrow and we ran into each other by chance in, in a sense. True. I'd been having a look at the stats on Kiva as to who's been donating what, and you're, I think, the top lender. <laughs> well, again, that's your fault. It means that next time you're going to have to pay for lunch, that's for sure. Um, again, to me, it's not about the amount that you're able to give, but where you can make it effective. I mean, we've got a lot of issues here in Australia. There are charities here that you can support that do effective work here. But I think, too, that for the amount that you lend has a much more powerful end-user effect in developing countries than it does does here uh, locally. So that's one of the reasons I like to give. Yeah, your, your, your dollar earns a lot more over there. But how do you determine your lending criteria? Who do you choose? Well, I tend to lend to women, I think, particularly in developing countries that generally have greater burdens than some of the men folk. So I mostly lend to women. Usually into education is very important. I think in any society, education is one of the things that lifts the whole country. And so if um, women are trying to educate themselves or even their children, uh, that's something that I find very attractive. Similarly, women running businesses. And on Kiva, you quite often get cooperatives of women uh, in Asia, for example, who are setting up a grocery cartel, oh, perhaps not a cartel, <laughs> uh, like a shop or business who want to buy a cow or, or so forth just to expand their opportunities. I think those sorts of things are incredibly useful and very powerful way for you to make your lending effective. Well, when I first set out to, to do the show, it was primarily education that I was going for, mm. but trying to find, when you narrow the search in mm. Kiva to women and then the subunit being education, often it's the women trying to educate their sons. And while yep. there's nothing inherently wrong with that, my preference is to lift the women. I agree. I do. And I think it comes down to, again, the sort of Kiva loans are going to fundamentally disadvantaged people anyway. And within that group, women usually are even more disadvantaged. And so I think anything that we can do to help lift them out of that cycle of poverty and 
and education is a big thing with that. It's very important that we do what we can. I mean, you've made over 100 loans, I think, on Kiva. So what's an average month look like for you? Average month would be, uh, it depends a little bit about what's happening in the lending community or in the borrowing community, really. Uh, sometimes I've sort of gone, well, look, there's nothing there that I really find that I can emotionally connect with that I think that's worthwhile supporting. But other times you tend to go a little bit, and I probably do this myself, a little bit over your budget and think, well, look, $25 is just the average loan to Kiva. It's not much to to me. It's, it's less than the price of a good lunch, but it means so much to somebody in a developing country that, you know, you know sometimes I, I just sort of keep clicking past when I perhaps should. <laughs> but again, it's it's a useful bad habit, I suppose. And the money that you get back, because the repayments come through each month, mm. and they're pretty much a standard, the borrowers have a fixed repayment schedule. Yep. Yep. What sort of figures are you getting back each month? Oh, it's well over, I haven't actually done the analysis, but it's well over 90%. The borrowers in Kiva are very reliable, and I actually get that money back in, and you relend it. Um, you could take it back yourself, but to my mind, you know, you've sort of committed this money into the borrowing population, so you relend it out to somebody else, and then add a little bit more of your own, and a little bit to support Kiva as an organisation. They've got very low overheads and so forth, but uh, it still helps them as well keep this going. Warwick, it's been a pleasure catching up. I think it's time for a beer. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've twisted my arm again. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure.